Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult series. Be sure to visit primed.com podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME CE credit. We are now in another surge of COVID-19 cases and sadly, COVID deaths are rising as well. There are so many aspects of this illness that is challenging for those of us seeing patients. It's hard to keep up on them as we manage our patients. It seems like a good time to do a quick update on a variety of topics related to COVID-19. Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today is Alan Ehrlich, Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and Executive Editor of Dynamed. Alan, thank you for helping me out today with COVID-19. Thanks, Frank. Good morning to you. Um, For the audience, just so you know, this is being recorded on December 4th, so hopefully things we say today remain pertinent and accurate, but recognize that every week things change. So, Alan, um, on everyone's mind today are vaccines. Can you give us an update um, on where things stand? So, there are three vaccines that are uh, in, I would call, late-stage development uh, or further in case of one of them. And it's easiest really to talk about them in terms of who their manufacturers are. So, the three are Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca. Um, Actually, They've all uh, been issuing competing press releases describing uh, their progress. Johnson Johnson also potentially will have something, but that's much further out. Pfizer uh, this week uh, is really the first across the finish line. The UK gave emergency use authorization for their vaccine to, uh, to be used in the UK starting immediately. So uh, that's, that's you know the really big news this week. The FDA is going to be looking at the Pfizer uh, proposal next week for emergency use authorization. Uh, again, they wanted to give their committee time to review all the data, but I wouldn't be surprised if a week from now there's uh, you know there's approval in the U.S. for emergency access. Um, so that's sort of the landscape at this exact moment. Just to give the data supporting some of these things. Pfizer ran a phase three trial, randomized more than 43,000 individuals to uh, vaccine and placebo, told them to report symptoms of COVID. Uh, 170 cases of COVID-19 were confirmed in the trial participants. And the breakdown was 162 cases in placebo group, eight cases in the vaccination group. And this suggested a vaccine effectiveness of about 95%. So um, that was, the big news there. At the same time, Moderna had about 30,000 patients in a phase three trial. Uh, They had 95 confirmed cases with 90 in placebo group and five in the vaccinated group, again, giving about a 94.5% efficacy. And then uh, AstraZeneca had a trial with about 23,000 participants, um, and they they, they showed similar uh, types of effectiveness. So, um, the difference with the AstraZeneca group is they were doing weekly surveillance for asymptomatic infection. So it wasn't just who had symptoms. 
Um, and they were also evaluating different dosages. So when the participants received a half dose followed by a full dose one month apart, the vaccine was about 90% effective. So that's pretty much the, the, the picture. The biggest difference is how you have to handle these things. The Pfizer vaccine has to be stored at minus 70 degrees Celsius. So you need a specialized freezer. Um, the Moderna vaccine has to be kept at minus 20 degrees Celsius, but the AstraZeneca one uh, only has to be stored at two to eight degrees Celsius. So that can be kept in a refrigerator. I know, uh, you know, I'm responsible for vaccination in my town as uh, the head of the Board of Health in this regard. And we have a vaccine freezer that goes to minus 20, but we don't have one that can handle minus 70. So it's unclear, even if that Pfizer vaccine gets emergency use, how many uh, organizations are going to readily be able to accept it, store it safely, and then administer it. I I, uh, I, I was disappointed that the AstraZeneca uh, data kind of got stumbled a little bit because not only is it able to be refrigerated uh, in a normal uh, situation, it's also much less expensive. So uh, I think uh, we'll have to see how this plays out. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a vaccine by the end of the year uh, available in the U.S. The question is, can we get it? Well, uh, many of you who've listened to the podcast know that in the spring, my good friend Phil spent uh, about two weeks on a ventilator and has recovered from COVID mostly, but he's constantly worried about getting infected again. Alan, what's the data on reinfection? So you absolutely can get reinfected, but it's unusual to rare. And you know, when the pandemic first started, this was one of the big unknowns. How, you know, how well would we develop immunity and would it uh, prevent uh, reinfection the way, uh, you know, so many viral infections are? Or is it closer to things like, let's say, influenza, where, uh, you know, if you had influenza, the, the strains mutate or immunity wanes or things like that. And so what they've found is there have been proven case reports of people getting reinfected, both with and without symptomatic uh, COVID-19. And uh, as I say, this is fairly infrequent. You, the antibodies, it's unclear how long they last. Uh, and one of the groups that may not get long-lasting immunity are people with mild disease. And as much as uh, COVID-19 is very scary, for a lot of uh, older people or people with uh, certain health underlying health problems. For many, many people, uh, if you're younger, um, young adults uh, or adolescents, you're talking about a disease that may be either very mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic. And I think there was a, an idea at one point that these people, if we could just get enough of them infected, could provide herd immunity. But that that theory may fall apart if they don't develop a sufficient uh, antibody response and they can get it again. The other thing is with any type of uh, virus where you're relying on the immune system to, to develop immunity, people have immune problems of one sort or another may not develop an effective response. We, we know, for instance, you know, uh, certain people when they get the hepatitis B vaccine are prone to not developing uh, appropriate antibodies. Uh, and uh, I'll mention celiac patients as being one group uh, that you know, is affected by that. So different populations have different antibody responses. 
the average, the typical person will develop antibodies that provide immunity that should last at least six to 12 months and probably longer, but there's definitely going to be people who can get it again. So if it uh, presents in a way that makes you think that has happened, don't think it's impossible. It absolutely is possible, but it's not likely. It's not likely. Um, I want to kind of take us through both patient presentation, testing, and treatment. So with regard to symptoms, um, I had a patient present with sudden onset back pain without any activity that changed. Um, GI symptoms are in the news. Can you just catch us up on the different uh, presenting manifestations of COVID-19? Sure. So COVID can present in a variety of ways. The, the reality, however, is it's still mostly presenting as uh, upper respiratory symptoms. Now, some of the things that are notable, which wouldn't uh, typically be considered upper respiratory symptoms, and this has been borne out uh, quite a bit. It was early on, it was speculated, and now it seems to be absolutely the case, which is the loss of uh, scent, uh, taste or smell. And those types of uh, symptoms are probably the most common neurologic manifestations, although there are others. The issue around GI symptoms, diarrhea is probably the most common and seems to be more typical in uh, uh, the pediatric age range. Even there, it's still unusual to be the only presenting symptom. It's much more common as a presenting symptom, but uh, it's not typically the sole one. Other ones, fatigue, muscle or body aches can occur. Um, I'm not familiar with them being isolated to the low back. Um, and if I had somebody who came in with low back pain, you know, one of the questions I would wanna know is, is this like your typical back pain? And same thing happens with headache. I get somebody who comes in and they have a headache. The first question I ask is, do you, uh, you know, often get headaches? You know, many times they have a migraine history. And the question is, is this like your typical migraine or is it different? Um, or is this like your typical tension headache or is it different? So the COVID headache, the COVID uh, body aches, this should feel different than what they're used to. Uh, again, other symptoms that come up, fatigue, uh, and then the, the upper respiratory ones include cough, runny nose, sore throat, uh, sometimes obviously the shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, but that's more variable. Um, many patients have that hypoxia where they may have a pulse ox in the 80s and they're sitting there and they, they, they don't feel uncomfortable. They don't feel dyspneic. So uh, those are the, probably the most typical presenting uh, symptoms. Again, varies by age and underlying comorbidities, but uh, it's, that's what I'm uh, screening for. And that's, that's what we do at our group. I agree. I, I was blown away. I, I thought the patient was uh, over anxious about the back pain, but sure enough, they tested positive. All right, let's move on. Um, prevention works, and I think still folks need to hear it. Can you update us a little bit? Are there are there things besides working from home, wearing masks? Um, can you just talk a little bit about that? Are there any supplements we should be encouraging people to use? Well, prevention works, but supplements are not part of it, Frank. <laughs> and I realize this is a question on everybody's mind. Um, the there, There's basically been a lot of studies looking at this, and um, you know, what have they looked at? They've looked at things like vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc. Um, these are probably, I think, the three most common ones that have been 
studied, and sometimes you're studied alone, and sometimes you're studied as part of larger trials uh, with, let's say, hydroxychloroquine or with uh, uh, corticosteroids. And there isn't any reliable data at this point suggesting that these supplements help. Now, vitamin D is probably the most interesting one because there is data that suggests that vitamin D deficiency puts people at risk for COVID infection and maybe more severe disease. The problem is there isn't any data that suggests that if you have someone, if you either supplement people who are vitamin D deficient or you supplement people in general with vitamin D, that you either prevent the disease or that you uh, cause it to be less severe. The data with zinc is similar. And so right now, the uh, National Institutes of Health, the NIH, uh, it does not recommend a supplementation other than what is the typical recommended daily allowance uh, that uh, people should be taking in general. Now, uh, I take vitamin D on a regular basis for other reasons. First of all, it's wintertime here in the Northeast. We all become a little vitamin D deficient and I have a celiac and so I have some absorption problems. So I'm taking it uh, on a regular basis, but it's not because I think it's going to help prevent the COVID-19. I would like to emphasize the things you brought up that really do work, which is social distancing, uh, wearing masks as a supplement to social distancing. Uh, it's not a replacement for it, but particularly where uh, situations where social distancing becomes uh, more difficult, mask wearing uh, helps uh, prevent spread in the community. And then finally, they have looked at um, the, the issue around uh, working from home. And in a, a recent uh, MMWR uh, you know, CDC report, they looked at 314 symptomatic patients uh, tested for COVID-19, and 35% were working from home and 65% were working outside the home. And they tried to control for other factors. And so overall, the odds ratio for getting COVID when you were working uh, outside the home was uh, almost twice as great as for people working in the home. There is always bias in these types of studies uh, when you're looking retrospectively, but nonetheless, uh, if people have the ability to work remotely, that's great. And again, that's how I would advise patients at this point in time. I think I think that really makes good sense. And I think we we as clinicians need to remind our patients of that. Okay, so you, you have a, a patient, they have symptoms, you send them off for testing. Um, what do we know about the rapid tests we keep hearing about? Can you just update us briefly on what's up with testing? Sure. So when we hear the phrase rapid tests, there are two things to keep in mind. There are two different kinds of rapid tests. One is an antigen-based test, and the other is the uh, PCR. And they, they're... Uh, their diagnostic characteristics are significantly different. With the antigen test, uh, there was a recent Cochrane review that looked at all of the rapid tests, and they found the antigen test had a pooled sensitivity of only about 56%. So uh, it had very high specificity, 99.5%. So with a uh, rapid antigen test, if the test is positive, then 
it's very likely to be correct. But a negative test, uh, you're missing about half the cases. And so this, uh, this is a significant problem. You cannot use a rapid antigen test to rule out disease. You can only use it to help confirm, and that's not always the, the most pertinent question. Nowadays, uh, most people who are getting tested are being tested because they've had an exposure. Uh, they're in quarantine. They may have traveled to a state, and when they come back here in Massachusetts, if you come back from another state, you have to isolate yourself. You have to quarantine until either two weeks have gone by or you have a negative rapid test. And the state will not accept a rapid antigen test because it's not reliable. PCR, on the other hand, uh, has very good uh, sensitivity and specificity. Sensitivity, 95%. Specificity, 98%. Cochrane uh, found that if you assume a 10% prevalence rate, which may not be a bad assumption, PCR had a positive predictive value of 90% and a negative predictive value of 99%. So the rapid PCR is really good at ruling out uh, the disease. So if you need to clear somebody, that is that's okay. There are a couple caveats to this. First of all, you have to make sure you're getting PCR. Where we are, uh, we have a limited supply, and we're using it primarily to clear healthcare workers to go back to work, or if we have too many patients with COVID-like symptoms, where we would have to close the room uh, for a couple of hours uh, to uh, you know, decrease the risk of the next patient coming into that room, getting a rapid PCR that's negative can help us uh, maintain, uh, keep our facility open. So th those are the, uh, the data on the rapid tests. And the important things are understanding what, you what tests are available to you, what the diagnostic uh, implications are of a positive and negative test, and understanding what your supplies are. I, I just just to reiterate um, for the audience, um, the PCR test both helps you identify who's infected and who's doesn't. The antigen test is most valuable when it's positive. It means that they probably do have the infection. A negative test does not rule out an infection. And so um, just keep that in mind because if, if patients sometimes feel, oh, I have a negative test, I'm safe. And the answer is that's not necessarily true. All right. Yeah, yeah, One well, other thing, Frank, about that, which is timing matters. And we know the optimal timing for testing is probably uh, uh, around the time symptoms are beginning uh, with or a few days afterwards. If you go too far out, you may not get reliable testing. And when you're testing asymptomatic people who may have been exposed but haven't developed symptoms yet, that's where you're uh, likely to get your uh, false false negatives. Yeah. Um, all right, so now we've got a patient who's got a positive uh, antigen test. So we're going to assume they're, they're actually, it's a true positive. Um, but they're a little short of breath. They have a cough. They have some fever. How do we go about managing them in the outpatient setting? And when do we decide to send them for admission? So the outpatient management in these situations is largely supportive. Um, what you're going to be doing is having them take uh, acetaminophen or ibuprofen for the fever, myalgias, things like that. There are a bunch of things that can happen when people get very sick, but again, most of the patients will be able to be managed uh, on an outpatient basis. Uh, again, I was looking at some data from our town, and currently we have uh, about 65 patients who have 
COVID-19 that we're monitoring, and only four of them are in the hospital. So that, uh, you know, is something to keep in mind. Now, in terms of who needs to be in the hospital, the patients who need to be in the hospital are typically elderly patients who can get sick very quickly, people who are, uh, you know, short of breath or uh, in any kind of respiratory distress, very hypoxemic. Uh, these are patients where the advantages of being in the hospital, getting some supplemental oxygen um, is important. The patients who are hypoxic can uh, worsen very rapidly, and you have to be uh, very careful about that. So what are the treatments that might warrant uh, need to be in the hospital? Certainly the supplemental oxygen. The other thing is when once people get hospitalized, that's when corticosteroids seem to be of benefit. And for patients who have been hospitalized, I think that's becoming fairly routine. The other issue is uh, that of coagulopathy. There's a lot of problems with uh, excessive clotting in patients with COVID-19, but again, it seems to be patients who are particularly sick, not, uh, it's not so much of a problem on an outpatient basis. And so uh, trying to manage those patients sometimes uh, with low uh, molecular weight heparin uh, is, is an option. There are a bunch of uh, other therapies that get bandied about and uh, the, the, the evidence for them seems to come and go. Remdesivir was very hot for a while. Uh, World Health Organization recently uh, suggested that this really doesn't help. I know people are still using it. Um, and again, there aren't great uh, specific treatments for COVID at this point in time. Uh, you know, again, the medicines like uh, um, the corticosteroids are very helpful, but they're not you know, specific uh, antivirals in, in that sense. Uh, I know President Trump was given a cocktail of uh, medications and he seemed to do well, but this is the same as everything else. These things are being investigated and I don't think there's anything that has proof yet. The one thing that I will comment in on is the whole hydroxychloroquine uh, saga. And I believe the data really is saying there just isn't benefit. Every time uh, somebody has an idea for trying in a different way, is it prevention? Is it uh, to give it only to people who are sick? Is it to only give it to people who are mild to prevent them from getting sick? They've looked at all these different uh, way, ways of giving hydroxychloroquine with vitamin D, without vitamin D, with zinc, with, with vitamin C. And the bottom line is there's no consistent evidence that it really makes a difference. So that's a quick rundown. This, you know, obviously we could, if we wanted to delve into uh, details, we could spend a whole hour just talking about uh, therapy for COVID-19. I think an awful lot of what happens in the inpatient setting is is dictated by your hospital's protocols, but I think in the outpatient setting, you've made some good points. Symptomatic management with acetaminophen and or ibuprofen. I like to tell people if they've got a cough, um, whereas if you listen to our previous podcasts, honey, every hour certainly tastes good, makes you feel better. Many people at home have home pulse oxes, and I'm telling them, please, you know, follow your symptoms. Don't follow the pulse ox because it'll make you very nervous. But if you're getting worsening dyspnea, that's when you need to call and, and get some help. Um, with regards to steroids, they've been proven effective in patients requiring oxygen. 
But there is some data that shows it actually may make some things worse in the outpatient setting if people are not oxygen dependent. So I've only been using steroids in patients with uh, co who are COVID positive and seem to have some degree of an asthma exacerbation with a, if they've had a history of asthma. Otherwise, I'm telling patients, no, I, I don't think steroids are a good idea. Would you agree? I, I completely agree. And I think it's important to keep that in mind because if you are seeing people who may or may not have COVID and let's say they have a sore throat and perhaps it's your practice to give people with bad sore throats uh, a quick bolus of steroids uh, for pain relief, that could be a bad idea in this case. If you're in the habit of treating a lot of people with quote unquote bronchitis with corticosteroids because you're hearing a little wheezing uh, or something like that, I'd be much more cautious. I would be really assessing how well are they breathing. If they're breathing fine and I hear a little wheeze, uh, I'm not going to be giving them uh, corticosteroids uh, at this point in time because if it, it can potentially make the underlying COVID worse if that's what they actually happen to have. Despite you know you know again you may not have access to rapid testing, so you're you're swabbing someone for COVID. Maybe they have it, maybe they don't. And until you're sure they don't, uh, I would stay away from steroids on an outpatient basis. Alan. I really appreciate you working so hard putting this together. This is a great deal of information. I think it's very informative, and I promise the audience we'll try to do this every month or two to just keep you all current. Thanks so much for doing all this work, and all of you, please take care. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for having me. Practice pointer. For patients with diagnosed COVID-19 that you're managing in the outpatient setting, treatment's primarily symptomatic. Honey for a cough, antipyretics, and reserve steroids for only those patients who are having a true asthma exacerbation. Join us next time when we talk about the controversy and the lack of data supporting coconut oil as a way to a healthy life. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primemed.com slash podcast and see you next week.